What's up, everybody? This is Rupert Radio, the show where we expand our awareness and increase our degrees of freedom. The following is a conversation with the one and only Adrian Oberg. Adrian is one of the first professionals to go through the Canadian Health Approved Training to become a psychedelic clinical counselor. That's right, he's breaking ground. Adrian works as a harm reduction professional and integration specialist who's been holding space for transcendent experiences for the past six years. He is the director of the Victoria Association of Psychedelic Studies, as well as the Celium, a harm reduction organization. I'm really excited to share this conversation with you because Adrian, to me, represents all the best qualities of a new generation of psychotherapists. Without further ado, let's dive in. I'm here with Adrian Oberg, and we're about to do our introduction ritual. So, Adrian, you ready? Yes, thank you. <laughs> let's uh, start by standing up, actually. And take a moment to feel into your feet on the floor. And if you're open to it, I'd invite you to stretch your chest towards the sky and lift your crown towards the ceiling. Find an easy stance. Notice the sensation of your body stretching and the weight distributed towards the earth. Give yourself a little roll. Move any muscles or joints that want to feel connected. Take a deep breath in and then let it out. We're going to do two more of those. Deep breath in. For this last one, deep breath in and see if you can Remain connected with your feet on the floor, chest towards the sky. I invite you to have a seat again and arrive fully in this space. Thanks, Blake. I'm curious to hear coming out of this connection to the sky, to the ground, to your body, Mm. uh, what you're feeling grateful for in this moment. Mm. Grateful. I'm grateful for the space I'm enjoying on this Saturday. I had room to come here and visit with you and do this spontaneously. Yeah, the room for spontaneity is something I've been working at. Mm. A lot of gratitude for that. Um, gratitude for uh, a lot of gratitude for my partner. She's been a lot of help in, uh, in uh, my partner Sydney. She's been helping me, like, yeah, work towards more space for that spontaneity among so many things, feeling lots of gratitude for her and just spending, yeah, spending time in nature, always feeling the ever present support there. Mm. Yeah. Infinite gratitude. Mm. Infinite gratitude. I'm feeling exceptionally grateful for this time in history we're in. It's been over a year and a half of basically the restricted socialization, lockdown measures, and the fact that society is opening up again, that I'm able to see friends in a way that doesn't feel like I'm potentially putting people at risk. Mm. Um, It's a wonderful feeling. And I really appreciate being able to go to beaches or parks and see so many young people out there um, just drinking up life. Mm -hmm. It's it's invigorating. Mm -hmm. It's like, where's Waldo out there on the beaches now? Yeah, totally. (laughs) 
So with this gratitude and with this connection, what is our intention for the conversation we're about to have? Hmm. Uh, yeah, I was hoping to be able to tell you a little bit about what it's been, what, what my experience has been in this, in this, um, you know, renaissance of sorts. So yeah, happy to be just kind of an open book as to, um, what it's been like in, in what feels like somewhat of a, of a unique position. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's so exciting to hear. Mm. I'm really hoping to introduce you, Adrian, to more folks mm. and uh, hopefully put on display some of the incredible efforts that I think you're doing to be an advocate and uh, someone who like moves with integrity and caring in a space that's of so high value for the whole world. And I know that for so many people who are involved with selfless missions that um, they don't often get the opportunity to toot their own horn. Mm -hmm. And so I'm hoping in a covert way to invite you to, yeah, really share your gifts and your um, experiences because I'm sure there's so many people out there who really want to learn alongside you. Mm -hmm. I appreciate this special opportunity. Yeah. Well, with that, um, maybe we should start with the most important question. Mm-hmm. You are training to be a psychedelic counselor. Mm-hmm. Why do you do this? What is it about um, being a counselor, being someone who can work with folks in this way? Like, what gives meaning to this process for you? Hmm. Uh, I think to begin with, Counseling is sort of just a way of living out my um, my propensity to be just captured. My attention is just captured by by other people. You know, I really feel most present when I'm engaged in um, in meaningful conversation, and I've I felt that way as long as I can remember. I think you know, my mom likes to um likes to tell stories about how when I was a kid I would just talk to to anybody and I've always really um enjoyed engaging with that and through putting in so many hours I found that um that relating to people you know it's it's not just you know it is the relationship it is the the co-creation of something with the person that that is yeah it's so um so gratifying and there's so many so much room for for learning and for exploration yeah it 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 thrills me and the fact that it that i've found over the years that i that it is it's mutually beneficial to the people that i speak with and that Mm. the more we cut through the small talk the more we talk about the things that are truly important to us meaningful the things that we struggle with the challenges that we have you know, the emotions that come up really getting down to that, to the human experience, that it, it has lasting, lasting effects, um, to, to, yeah, the, the sharing of, of the, those experiences I find has, uh, yeah, I guess what we'd call like therapeutic effects and, you know, the, that speaks to counseling to some extent, um, in this particular field, was this part of your question as well? Yeah, sure. Yeah, in this particular field, uh, while work with psychedelics 
in uh like in an acute way when when people are actually using psychedelics there isn't nearly as much of the the conversational dynamic but but that relationship becomes sort of the the foundation and and I feel like through that relationship I can really be a support for people as they as they delve into their own self their own psyche mm-hmm. delving into psyches <laughs> that's a fun pastime yeah so it sounds like since you were a kid that you were interested in getting to know people more intimately mm. and yeah I mean it just strikes me that that's something that isn't universally shared. Like so many different people have different relationships with socialization or inviting or embracing the nuances of others' experiences. Mm-hmm. And so is it true that for you, that's something that more or less came naturally? Hmm. Yeah. It's a real interest, a real, um, a real appreciation for stories. Though on the other hand, I remember a, a point in my life where it was pretty, it was natural for me to say that, um, you know, that I that I didn't like people, you know, that uh, I think as I was recognizing so many of the things to do with our society that um, that I that I'm not so fond of, and you know, the ways that it has sort of, you know, funneled people into acting, that uh, I. Yeah, there was a time where I, I was able to look look down in a very general way on on people on society, but that that didn't that was that was kind of a, a shallow a shallow understanding of things, and it didn't take long before I started asking more questions of that and what is what is actually going on with people, and the the interest was renewed. Yeah, that's super interesting. One of the things you mentioned was like a disdain for small talk. And it's mm. something I really share, death to small talk. I, I can't <laughs> stand it. I don't see a ton of value in it. Increasingly, though, I have people in my life who really point out the the subtle ease or the, the familiarity with certain traditions or things that people are socialized to do, like small talk. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm, just, I'm personally trying to find that balance of how to have those like low-cost conversations and relationships with other people while at the same time really enjoying and desiring more intimate connections and i think at this point if it was given the knob i would skew to like 90 percent those like in-depth conversations Mm. i'm curious like what's your relationship with small talk and how do you um help cultivate those relationships or that understanding with the people that you have in your life whether they're clients or friends or loved ones um that helps strike that balance of whatever it looks like for you. Mm-hmm. I think the small talk is an important part of the equation. I, I, um, I don't really have a problem with it, but I, I, I so love to get past it, but that I do feel like it is this, um, it is this interpersonal feeling out that, um, you know, it's almost the, that by, you know, going through with the, the pleasantries, you know, yeah, the sort of those traditional, Hey, how's it going? That there's, there is this give and take, this back and forth where we, where we establish comfort or we come to recognize where, where the other is at and what they're open to, not only through the words that are being spoken, but just the, 
you know, what, what sort of mood comes out in a person's voice and in the way that they are and in their willingness to engage. So I feel like it's uh it's very much like a feeling out process that is uh, for the most part unconscious, but, but that it, I think that it is important, mm. but that it gets us, you know, the more, the, the better we know people, the more we can kind of skip it. But I still find that I'm I'm habituated to to start that way, and that mm. it is almost just uh, it's kind of just the opening of a door. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is it something that you're content with, or like leaving as a part of your relationships at this time? Like I heard you just say, what I heard was some version of it's the standard expectation, and there is value in it, so you continue to part participate in it. Mm-hmm. I'm curious for like even if we look at the work you're doing leading up to being a counselor like is that something that you think is that something you intentionally plan for or like factor into your relationships mm. it's um it's something that i abide by and it's something that even in in counseling dynamics where where it might i might feel that there's a a sense where we should just get right into the thick of it that i'm a lot more prone to to yeah just checking in with the person you know that this it's sort of like a growing uh um there's a trend these days to have check-ins which i think is really um really important and that it is i think just small talk at greater depth that when you know saying how are you you know that that ideally that 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 should be the check-in but we've kind of become in this rote manner just say how are you good okay like there's not really there's not a whole lot of thought behind it Mm. of course there are people who are more intentional with how they answer those questions and they they turn it into a check-in and yeah i like to do that in a in a casual fashion you know that i'm sincerely interested in how someone is doing and i want to hear whatever they have to to say and that often what what comes up at the at the onset of um yeah, have a meeting with a person, a, a client or a potential client. It's just, yeah, it's a, it's an opening. Yeah. So often I, I find that I'm maybe engaging in small talk and perceiving that others are ready to, ready to get past it. And I'm happy to respond to that. But mm. yeah. Yeah. I mean, two things. One, thanks for being the kind of person who is sincerely open to those in-depth, um, check-ins and being receptive to learning sincerely what the other person's going through at the moment that's definitely come through in my interactions with you and i genuinely appreciate it oh you're welcome yeah and the second thing is just like emphasizing how important consent seems to be and that's been a slow lesson for me to pick up on but Mm. realizing that even if i'm ready to leap into it the other person may not be maybe they're feeling nervous maybe they're still sorting out what they're feeling maybe they're not even aware that they're feeling certain things mm. and yeah i just i'm just coming to mind so many times where i've been like okay like let's explore this and they're like whoa 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 i don't i don't want i'm not sure if i want to do that right now uh-huh. <laughs> so that seems high value you mentioned doing check-ins and i'm wondering for those who aren't who are listening who may not be familiar with that if you could just describe what a check-in is mm-hmm. i uh, i counter most in sort of group processes um, or in classes at school, you know, that upon arriving, you know, even once we all know each other and we've all been introduced, that 
it's important for everyone to just be able to, to speak up about how they're doing, you know, even with uh, without anyone responding, but just the opportunity to to share transparently, authentically into the space where you're at, what you're showing up with. It's an opportunity to, um, you know, to to make people aware of any like any current sensitivities of any. Um, yeah, it's a way to explain you know, anything that, um, that you might care to explain, you know, if you're, if you're not feeling well, you, why you may have to leave suddenly or leave the room briefly or anything of that nature. And also an opportunity to share, to share any, any joy perhaps, or anything else you might be going through and to, to bring that into the space and to, Mm. to offer it up for, for whatever it may be worth, depending on, on how everyone else is showing up. Yeah. It strikes me that the, grounding exercise we did at the beginning in practice like in the past i've also included uh check-ins with those and i realized thus far on the podcast that hasn't been a part of the format mm. but yeah it can be so so useful because if the invitation is simply to share your gratitude well maybe there's some grief there too mm-hmm. and maybe those in the community that you're participating with could really benefit from learning what's alive in you regardless of whether it's threatening or pleasurable or whatever but just to get a a more clear scope of who it is they're interacting with at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that even just to know that that you're being given space to speak authentically and that people are, are going to listen, that is reinforcing that. Everyone, I think we can all benefit from having that reinforced, that what we have to say is, is, is worthy, is valuable. Yeah. Yeah, what a wonderful idea. And to couple that also with the... The, that it's an invitation and that people, if they're wanting to, they can opt not to participate. They can opt to say like, hey, today I don't really feel like talking. Mm-hmm. And then also, yeah, I don't know. I can think of so many things for this. I think too of times where I've done this in group and where people have, say, got the like metaphorical microphone and then just talked and talked and talked. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one thing to monitor and as a community to stay on top of, of like establishing expectations of like what the shares look like, how long they might go on. So like setting like a two minute cap or whatever, but recognizing that for some people, maybe they actually haven't got an opportunity to like speak and be heard. Oh yeah. And that once given that avenue, it's like huge, it can be cathartic. It can be an opportunity to like flex muscles that have really been stagnant. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it just it's such such a simple idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So more of that, more check-ins. More. Yeah, maybe if we can be more mindful with our small talk, it can be effectively a check-in. Mm-hmm. As a, <laughs> I don't know how many other people do this, but I uh, offer that invitation to every service person that I engage with, like like cashiers or baristas or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I've worked those jobs and I've known how monotonous it can be to mm. just have like an assembly line of customers come through with little variants. And each one is like the bare minimum of human. It needs to be each interaction. Mm-hmm. It just feels like a robot would be so much better at this job. Mm-hmm. And so at one point when I was doing that work, I started, I made it my goal to try and see a reaction from each person that showed that they were conscious and that mm. they were like, participating in a in a like a live way sure and so i as a goal for myself i try now to always like connect with the cashiers or whatever 
It's so interesting. I think a lot of people appreciate the fact like, oh, an opportunity to actually like come online. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. 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 I avoid the, uh, the, the robot cashiers specifically just so that I can, yeah, get a little, a little connection with someone who I may never see again, but yeah, yeah it seems like there's some intrinsic value for both of us in it. Right on. Well, we've gone this far and we haven't yet spoken about what probably is the hottest topic right now. Right. So I'd love to hear you speak about uh, Theracil and your experience there. Mm-hmm. And maybe for a little context, um, Adrian, you are just graduating from UVic mm-hmm. on the path to getting registered as a clinical counselor. Mm-hmm. And as for the last like three months, four months, You've been involved with an organization based here in Victoria, BC called Theracil. That's right. And I'd love to tell, uh, I'd love for you to tell the audience um, what you're doing there. Oh, great. Thanks. Um, I've been part of a, uh, a Theracil training cohort for, for therapists and, and health professionals, doctors, nurses. Um, everyone is being trained to be able to provide psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy. Um, that's hence the name Theracil. Theracil. Ther- there's a silent P in there. <laughs> Therapsil. Yes. So yeah, therapeutic psilocybin. Hmm. So Theracil has, um, they received exemptions back in August, exemptions from the, from section 56 of the Controlled Substances Act to be able to use psilocybin, which is, you know, a scheduled substance, but to be able to use it in therapy. Um, the exemptions they received have been primarily for people who are experiencing end-of-life distress, usually associated with um, with a terminal cancer diagnosis. So based on a lot of the research that has been happening over the past decade or so, um, research out of Johns Hopkins, out of UCLA, um, they've been successfully treating people who have who have this, uh, this kind of end-of-life distress around their terminal diagnosis. They've been able to reduce anxiety and depression and really sort of enliven a, uh, you know, a, them and yeah, rejuvenate sort of a, a zest for life and appreciation for where they are and kind of cultivate uh, a sense of acceptance of, 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 the, of their their diagnosis and their, their place that its place in their, in their life and their death. So the, the training has been, um, an opportunity to learn about the specifics of, of psilocybin as well as the specifics of, um, of like the presentation of, of end of life distress. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we're all being trained to be able to, to support these people who receive their exemptions. So to, in summary, you're part of a group of how many folks are in the cohort? 20. 20. Uh, doctors, nurses, therapists who are receiving training to be the first batch of um, clinicians in Canada to administer this kind of therapy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they've been providing the therapy already with a few um, already qualified um, practitioners but there's there's a great need so so Theracil is making sure that there's a pool of of trustworthy reliable people that they can um that they can source from to to meet the needs of these of these patients mm-hmm. and to the best of my knowledge this is the first group in Canada to do it especially at this scale mm-hmm. it is yeah yeah which i mean makes you a part of history 
feels yeah it feels pretty special i'm uh very honored to be a part of this group yeah. yeah that's wonderful what did what did your training look like in the past couple months what was the emphasis and what was the level of experience for the people going into it was everyone familiar with psychedelics was it like an introduction course mm-hmm. um yeah just an overview of what the course was like and who was there Mm-hmm. There was a, a range of, of familiarity. Everyone was definitely acquainted, acquainted with the research, had, um, you know, to some extent, had um, experience, you know, working with people who have, um, how, how should I say this? I think most most people were very experienced in the in their counseling work, and they've come to sort of recognize. That, um, that that psychedelics may be able to sort of fill fill a gap in the healthcare provision, and so they they've you know done a lot of the research. They have some of their own, you know, some of their own experience in uh, in like a medical in a clinical setting, but yeah, really a wide a wide range. So it wasn't so much introductory. I think I really appreciated that. You know, I've I've been involved in some some training, some workshops where where uh, a lot of the information is yeah getting everybody up to speed but we were all sort of starting from uh from a, a, a we're we're at a different starting point you know a little bit further along the path so it was um yeah it was such a such a privilege to be able to to learn alongside uh an illustrious group of of counselors and doctors and nurses mm. mm-hmm. yeah Therasale, for their part has been putting up uh webinars and youtube videos trying to get the word out and one thing I heard recently was they pointed out that for the cohort you're a part of, it really was structured to be like a graduate level course. Because mm. in order to qualify, you previously had to have a set of qualifications that put you into like a master's category at the minimum. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm super excited by the idea of those things coming into existence and the level of nuance and skill that must go into navigating what is a really potent space. Mm-hmm. in like psychedelic experiences yeah what sort of things jumped out at you as being um like did was there anything that surprised you or was there any lessons in there that um really expanded your skill set hmm well the training isn't actually complete now that seems like one of the most most pertinent things right now is that what we've done so far has been um has been online you know because of the current circumstances we've had to do it all via zoom but we understand and the trainers understand and Therosel understands that the real, you know, the real work, the real training, the real engagement uh, happens, happens in person. You know, it's, it's doing the work, it's doing the sessions. That's where you, know, you really interact with the, the development of, of relationship and that we are, you know, as part of the training, we've planned a, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a it's a retreat where we we all go and we we support each other. We've been we've been put together into dyads and triads. So we've been preparing each other to do you know to actually use psilocybin personally um, as a you know as a way of modeling what we'll be doing with with our, with Theracil's patients. So the the crux of it all is to actually you know build that relationship you know, create the, the container to be able to support someone through their experience, um, have the experience and continue integrating with them. But to do that, 
we need to be able to, to use psilocybin legally. So we have applied for exemptions in, a, in, in order to be able to, to take psilocybin, exemptions to, yeah, to, the, to Section 56 of the Controlled Substances Act. And initially, they had Health Canada approved 19, um, 19 Theracil-affiliated um, healthcare professionals to do so but this cohort um, a few of those people are in this cohort and then a lot of us haven't received that I've applied for an exemption myself and we have not gotten approval yet so it's really it's really put the whole process on on pause so that's that's what that's what we that's what we really need is to be able to to follow through to find out can we you know can we effectively hold space for someone while they while they go through what it can potentially be a really difficult experience. The thing that jumps out to me is a story of a philosopher who read all there was to know about swimming and then ran to uh, the edge of a dock and dove into the deep end. I mean, never <laughs> swam before, only to realize that the difference between practical knowledge and uh, studying. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it seems like getting all the people in the cohort, the ability to go through the process in a supported way is critical for ensuring that um, they'll know how to swim once they're Mm -hmm. in in the deep end. Mm. Yeah, the theory's all in the head, but when it comes to the the practical application, um, so much of it is how we resource our heart or our gut or our, you know, whatever it is that we might, might distinguish from the more cerebral processing i think that especially in this kind of therapy that's that's what we really need to call upon and that's what we really need to trust in ourselves Mm. so i don't want to let you off too easily and i did ask what uh what sort of things jumped out from the training Mm -hmm. it sounds like where the training's at now you're waiting to do the meat of it and to Mm -hmm. really pull out those lessons but i'm sure that you do have some insight on how to cultivate that heart connection or that embodied relating in a way that hopefully can help um, establish safer modes of being or ways of relating to intense or difficult sensations. Mm-hmm. So what what sort of t- um, skills or tools do you have to help people in your life? Hmm. Yeah, there are sort of some pillars that I rest upon. Um, Curiosity, curiosity and, and openness. I think that that um, that really helps you know lay the foundation that I have a sincere, a sincere um, interest and, and curiosity in what what um, what a patient or a client might be going through, and my openness to to learning about their experience to to trying to see as clearly as possible from from their point of view to ask them you know what is what is most important for me to know about them to for me to understand what they're going through um that that helps me to really show up just um without expectation mm. to really try to um enter you know, be, be invited into someone else's world and, and, and find out what, uh, what is salient for them. So on that note, do you 
specifically set up or make a habit of explicitly asking that? Hmm. Sometimes, sometimes that comes up as a, as a, a very specific question. Um, or is it just more generally like an attitude that you hold? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's more something I've been able to kind of recognize in myself. And then, um, and then, you know, even in speaking about it now, I kind of reinforce, you know, I fortify the, 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 the notion that that is, that that is good, that mm-hmm. is positive. I can share that with people, but, um, yeah, sometimes it, sometimes it does lead to a, a particular question and it can kind of, yeah, kind of cut, cut through in a, in a positive way. Mm-hmm. So compassion, curiosity, um, what, what do you stack on top of that? Mm. Yeah. Just being, you know, re- respect, you know, absolute like total respect for, a person and their process and what has gotten them here and the fact that they're here at all, you know, the idea that they are looking to, um, to do deep work. Um, yeah, I, I can be, I can be in awe so often of, of the, the ability that people have in the, the willingness and the determination to, um, to improve their their state you know to or to to accept some aspect of where they are mm-hmm. you know, that that in doing that i feel yeah i feel in awe i feel so so privileged to be able to to be in this position where where in some ways all i have to do is communicate that um that i that i appreciate them and i want to know about their life and I want to to do whatever they um, hmm. I want to be there for and support whatever it is that that they need to do hmm. and that I don't I don't know what they need to do but I'm I'm happy to be there with them mm-hmm. yeah sincerely like interested in being there with them to to figure it out mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in that I hear echoes of the in what in counseling is called client-centered care Mm -hmm. which seems to be from having spoken to people in this field really the del facto or the default um philosophy that infuses so much of western counseling these days which my understanding of it put succinctly is prioritizing the client's abilities strengths and their ability to choose what path their healing takes And in that relationship, the counselor is not some expert with answers to solve or to come in. It's very opposite of what I think traditionally doctors are considered. But Mm -hmm. instead, they're like companions on a journey of Mm self-discovery. And that the process is through relating to one another with that compassion and with that openness. And that like, yeah, like you got this, like almost a cheerleader element. Also, maybe setting up some boundaries or offering some honest feedback at time mm-hmm. that seems like um yeah a really healthy set of attitudes to bring to the healing relationship mm-hmm. yeah nicely put yeah it's like if it isn't if it isn't client-centered what is it <laughs> what's the, what's the alternative you know we all know what that kind of feels like but it's a funny uh term client-centered because it's hard to imagine the antithesis 
Yeah, I mean, if you want to get into it, we could talk about <laughs> Freudian psychology and the idea of, um, like, literally in Western psychology, the first counselors were people who sat on a chair upright while their clients laid down. So already you have a power dynamic. Mm-hmm. And then the person faced, a, the client faced away from the counselor and, mm-hmm. like, was the relationships often were such that they saw each other once a week for like 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, it gets really odd. Mm-hmm. It's like, I want you, the counselor here in a Freudian session was like, I want you to project your feelings of your father onto me <laughs> so that we can work through them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm glad we don't do that so much anymore. Yeah. Yeah. There's no doubt that they were onto something, but they were kind of fumbling through some of the initial initial steps yeah totally and maybe that approach does have value for some people i just know that's something for myself that i would much more appreciate the approach that is collaborative and based in relationship and Mm. in a way that is mutually respectful and encouraging Mm -hmm. yeah i'm so curious about what all those you know how relationship played a role in those you know extended weekly you know visits in that it seems often that uh, the, you know, from the professional standpoint, they were, you know, resisting relationship, but that they must have been ignorant of, of the way that relationship was always developing for the client or mm-hmm. or maybe not ignorant, but not the same understanding that's yeah, thankfully becoming popularized today. Mm-hmm. The, the thing that jumps out to me is that the desire that's perhaps unaddressed in the counselors in those settings to retain or consolidate power and to be able to one who direct the situation and they give instructions or they, Oh, well, obviously you're feeling like this because of your unquestioned. It's like, ugh, it's, I can see why that's intoxicating for like different people. That's to feel like you have the solutions Mm -hmm. and that you can help cure someone's pain. Mm-hmm. I think we're all familiar with having loved ones who are going through something or even a stranger or whatever. And you're like, Oh, I'm not in the sand pit. I can just reach in and pull them out and then they'll love me. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, hopefully for anyone who is sincerely interested in helping others as well as themselves, they can continually investigate like, what are my motivations here for helping? Mm-hmm. And in some cases they might be to, Prove to yourself that you can help. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that idea of being a white knight so that <laughs> if you can solve the situation, then you'll be deserved of love or admiration or whatever. And it's funny because it's like, oh, now you're just like putting your healing on the person you're trying to help. Because mm-hmm. now whether or not they succeed will be the t- determining factor of whether or not you have worth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 We all want to think that we're doing a, a good job. But sometimes, you know, the 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 drive to to be assured of that, you know, leads to that, you know, the the solidifying of a power dynamic that may, in fact, not be optimal for the client. Mm-hmm. So, in your practice, how do you monitor that? Are there steps that you take to retain accountability or humility? it's something that can so easily get away from you uh, Mm. just from people in general. I mean, like what do you do to, to stay on top of it? Hmm. Yeah. I try to, uh, 
try not to I try not to be showing up in a lot of pretense. I'm not so focused on appearing professional. I um I'm okay with divulging things about myself with evening that that keel. I'm you know, I, I want to develop a, a, a meaningful a relationship that's meaningful for both of us. Um yeah, I, I make it clear that I'm not I'm not someone who's going to save anyone, that I'm not the one you know, I'm not the I'm not a healer, you know, that some people want some people some clients show up and and they want you know, they want just to do whatever whatever it is that I think it needs to be done, they're they're ready to do it. They're so willing and ready they want to heal. And they, they they want the secrets, and if I have them, they, they they'll listen for them. But yeah, from the beginning, I'll say like, you know, I don't have these these secrets. I I, I believe that you do inside of you that you have the secrets that mm. are suited perfectly to your your situation and your arc through life. So yeah, making it making it clear early on that I'm I'm no expert in in my clients psyche or their emotions or anything like that but that i'm that i accept them and that i i want to know about them and that you know from my position i'm just uh yeah i'm i'm support i'm not the healing factor yeah uh-huh. it needs any growth or change by definition needs to come from the person otherwise what are the chances of it sustaining the mm-hmm. sessions like if somebody, if your muscles are weak and somebody picks you up and you're like, oh, sweet. I'm like upright again. This is wonderful. <laughs> Thanks. And then they leave and you just slump back to the ground. It's like, how useful was that? Mm-hmm. Versus if they're standing beside you and they're like, hey, like, yeah, I'm, I can help you stand. And, but you need to test your muscles. You need to grow them out. And maybe they can be like, oh, like I noticed it seems like you're leaning forward. What would it be like to lean back? Mm-hmm. And then the person's like, oh, shit, I didn't didn't even think of that (laughs) Mm. yeah yeah it's it's um it's a process to kind of own whatever you know familiarity or whatever experience one has you know to be able to suggest that sort of you know that leaning forward in a way that that doesn't enact a power dynamic but that comes out of you know like a mutual exploration and Mm. yeah it's uh it's definitely been an intuitive process for me, but one that I'm really interested in. Yeah. Cool. Maybe we can trace back what that process has gone for you. And I'd love for you to give a little bit of context of your, how long you've been participating in um, the field of psychedelic therapy as like a researcher or somebody who's just like curious some of the space or a community builder. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was, I think I was 15 when I first um, encountered mushrooms and seemed like there was a lot of, lot of potential. I was struck by how much, uh, how, how profound and how, um, how many different aspects of, of culture, of really fascinating parts of the culture that I was reading about was, uh, were, were influenced by, by psychedelics. And yeah, I wanted to, I saw a lot of people around me using them and I wanted to be able to, 
to to support yeah, more beneficial use just to just to, to maximize and optimize and help help people yeah use use drugs better and it wasn't you know it was right from the beginning i i didn't feel like like the status quo was very well informed i so i was sort of yeah i sought to to correct it I, I I was well aware that what I was doing could be perceived as as deviant. That you know, even like just talking about about substance use, um, where I was, where I grew up, and at that point in my life, it was very much taboo. But I came from such a place of of privilege and felt very well supported by you know by my by my family, by the people around me that that I, I was empowered to, to share openly about what I was experiencing. Mm. And then, yeah, that was, that was all I felt, you know, that, that felt like that was enough to offer and that, you know, to offer up my experience and to have people, you know, take it for whatever it was worth to them. Um, yeah, I just kind of did that and kept learning and kept sharing and really only ever, yeah i can't think of times when i encountered anything other than 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 positivity or curiosity maybe some like apprehension for sure um like doubt but most most people were um they were they were curious about about what i was talking about and i think that i you know i was i don't know if i want to say like representing but yeah, in some ways it felt like I was creating the possibility that maybe the idea of, of just of drugs and all drugs being, you know, sort of under the same category. I was helping people dissect that mm -hmm. a little bit and I was compelled to do that from an early age. Right on. Mm -hmm. So you were 15 when you started. How mm -hmm. old are you now? 33. So it's it's been a journey. That's 18 years. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And after your adolescence into adulthood, um, what were the steps that, like my sense of just hearing about your history is that it continued to grow in not only your passion, but also your, um, the scale of your operation. Mm. Yeah, no, there were definitely like times where it, where it fizzled, you know, there were, when I was in, in high school, I had all kinds of dreams of what we might be able to discover you know, maybe using psychedelics with an, an fMRI machine or something like that. I was in, yeah, very much in sort of the, the bio psych, you know, very couched in the material world, but, you know, trying to discover what, what we could, um, what we could possibly find out. And I, but it felt like a pipe dream, you know, it didn't feel as if the, the cultural context had any room for that. So, yeah, I, I just want to chime in and say psychedelics have not always been popular. Yeah. And especially in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, there really was this opposition, this taboo to serious scientific or even spiritual investigation of these subjects. Mm -hmm. And I just want to emphasize how much admiration I have for yourself as well as everyone out there who continue to take seriously that this was not only a useful thing to follow, but something that was so vital that in the face of um, like 
real obstacles mm. that you continue to do it. And mm. it's, I think, due to the many hands, like trying to lift this up over time that we are t in today, what people are calling the psychedelic renaissance and giving, yeah, the public the opportunity to like see, oh yeah, this shit is actually very potent medicine for growth mm. and for healing. And yeah. Absolutely. And so many of those people did so at, at great risk to themselves as well. You know, even when there didn't seem to be opportunities to pursue it, you know, in the professional or the academic world, that there have been so many people who have, you know, believed in the in the healing potential of these substances that they've um that they've ensured that people have had access to them. And yeah, I have, you know, like yeah, so much yeah, endless gratitude and appreciation for, you know, all the, the risk that has been taken by, you know, by the growers, by the providers, by the chemists, by the, you know, by all the, um, all the facilitators out there who, who have been able to help so many people at, uh, at significant risk to themselves. And also all those people, especially I think people who aren't white, who maybe had ancestral lineages or traditions that in, involve these medicines these plants these animals and all the ones who faced persecution and they were silenced or they were incarcerated mm -hmm. like this yeah huge love and also grief for the price that's been paid throughout history just so that this flame could be kept alive oh yeah and they're still disproportionately you know able to um to step into that in the same way like i i would have much more difficulty if i you know presented as as marginalized in any way um i i don't think that this path would have been nearly as um as smooth not to say that it was smooth but um yeah i would have faced a lot more obstacles along the way and that i can see now that um that it is it is still so much easier for you know for white people for white males especially to to step into these roles comfortably because they they haven't had to face the same kind of opposition that that you know really that most of our 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 population has mm -hmm. yeah and if you're listening to this and that strikes you as a dubious claim i would just like to point out that there are countless examples of populations um, like say a white population and then a, a non-white population that live in close proximity that have where in which the white group has a disproportionately higher um, use of substances, say cocaine, and yet face almost no retaliatory um, consequences from police. But then you go the neighborhood over, which is say black or first nations or whatever. And they have mass incarceration and just so many so much like government pressure to penalize and um, punish and shame for something that i mean your white neighbors are doing and they're getting along with it fine mm -hmm. and so yeah just really wanting to make space for the fact that hopefully especially for substances like psilocybin or mdma these things that have immense therapeutic potential but also for the things that are say more recreational or more um, have a higher abuse potential. Hopefully we can continue to become aware of what prejudices we have and cultivate relationships 
amongst our communities that encourage people to be responsible and safe rather than just discriminating based on, I don't know, hate or disdain. Yeah. Racial tensions. Mm. And just sort of like stereotypes that they've just absorbed. If you smoke crack, you're a terrible person. But if you do cocaine, you're a high executive. (laughs) (laughs) So we've gotten off track a little bit. Oh, yeah. I was talking a little bit about how... um how it wasn't exactly like a um a linear trajectory i think that i think that there were sort of two parallel processes um one in which i didn't really see um psychedelic research psychedelic therapy as an actual um you know as a professional path um but at the same time, I was I was continued to experiment on my own and was having experiences that I didn't know how to make sense of, that I didn't know how to integrate, and that um, yeah, those two parallel paths kind of resolved together. Uh, when I when I was I moved out to Victoria, and I was studying, I was doing a bachelor's in psychology at UVic. And I would take certain assignments and, and turn them into, you know, yeah, investigations into into psychedelics, you know, for my own for my own enjoyment, you know, to make to make good use of the of the work that I was doing, but also to be able to to spread the information around and see if people responded to it. And as I as I did that, I was also, you know, in my personal life making friends, you know, just around around the university and discovering that a lot of them were also curious about, about psychedelics. And a few of us decided to put together a, uh, a UVSS, like a student society club called the Victoria Association for Psychedelic Studies. Which yeah. is an homage, I take it, to um, MAPS. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, we had uh, Philippe Lucas was actually the yeah he was he headed the the movement he had been you know he was a city councillor in town here he was the uh the head of maps canada at one point um had done done a lot of great work and so yeah i felt felt like we were okay to ride the coattails of maps just to sort of get started and you know yeah do our, do our own thing entirely but it was it was really good you know our first a couple of our our first uh, meetings we did a uh, you know like a a web you know, i guess it would have been a zoom call even though it was six years ago yeah a zoom call with rick doblin you know to kind of get get the lay of the land and with gabor mate and all these people who were very um they were kind of yes yeah, very prominent on the scene at the time and it helped us helped us to feel like like we were doing something that had some had some momentum had some weight behind it and that could actually attract people the club became like um like a lightning rod for all all the different people in the area such a such a wide array of you know what you I'm tempted to call psychedelic people but really they're they're as um they're as multidisciplinary as they get you know the interesting thing that I find about psychedelics is they can kind of infuse any level any aspect of of uh of this this 
culture or the society of ours you know it's all it all relates so yeah brought a lot of interesting people out of the woodwork that both helped me see that there was enough um there was enough collective energy being channeled into this movement that it was maybe something i could you know run a little bit faster with and it also helped me in my in my personal work you know that bringing out so many perspectives so many ideas so much so much new terminology you know everyone kind of comes from their own area of expertise and their own you know reading and what they've been exposed to but to get these groups together to build the relationships where we feel free to share what's really important to us that just um yeah that helped me begin integrating all the experiences that i hadn't yet made sense of and mm. you know they're they're by no means complete but um but they they're now sort of fuel for the for the work what i'm picking up on in there is the incredible value of communication and community in dispersing and examining ideas mm. and yeah i just it seems really a topic that in today's world, especially on platforms like Twitter and YouTube, there's an ongoing narrative of the role or the danger of censorship. Mm -hmm. And just looking at the history of like the war on drugs and how many of these conversations were forced underground. And for how long did people who are interested in understanding psychedelics or the therapeutic potential of these medicines not have an avenue to be like, hey, I just experienced this thing. Does anyone have any sense of why that was or what I could do with that information? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I just want to firmly state that I fully believe in the free exchange of ideas mm -hmm. and doing so with humility and with grace and also critical, like the ability to say like, hmm, I'm not sure if that lands for me or I don't fully understand that. Mm -hmm. But here's to more of that and less of saying we can't talk about these topics. That's not mm -hmm. okay. Because I'm not sure when that ever is useful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I felt so fortunate to be here in Victoria where there were so many people that whose minds were open to it. Because in the backwater town where I grew up, you know, I don't think I knew a single person who, um, who had taken, you know, LSD and would actually talk about it. Mm. You know, things like that. It was just, it was totally verboten and it really... It meant that I it meant that I had to reach out into the you know the greater you know the media you know that, that I felt I heard a lot of um I heard the references in music you know yeah. I read them in the books that I was reading and it it gave me a very specific <laughs> and kind of limited perception of it all but it wasn't until I started meeting people who had really explored these spaces and were keen to talk about it that things started flourishing yeah and through that i'm sure if you're experienced mirror and mine at all the idea of coming across like bodies of literature <laughs> that have like there's terms for these things that we've experienced and you're uh -huh. like oh i i thought i was the only one who like encountered this uh -huh. lo and behold people have been investigating it thoroughly and like have discovered things that i haven't even touched upon or like glanced from a distance what a valuable trove of resources huh yeah yeah being able to actually have the words to describe things allows you to move on to the next mm -hmm. you know the next step of kind of it's not just some amorphous thing that you're trying to understand you can peg it and like 
move it around and make it a piece to understand. Yeah, yeah. Wittgenstein had good things to say about that. For sure. I'm going to hard nope talking about Wittgenstein <laughs> though, just for fear of losing the audience. But you're totally right. Um, I also just want to share a story. I have a friend who uh, in grade school, in elementary, um, they very much were in the position of never having a direct open conversation with anyone in their life about sexuality mm. such that they got to be, I forget how old we were, but say grade four or something mm. like an advanced age to some degree where they had no idea what sex was, mm. but based on the peripheral cultural references to it, they had inferred that it was something that happened in the bathtub mm. Mm. <laughs> and just like, to show how far off their understanding or estimate was, I mean, I guess you can have sex in a bathtub, but um, from the reality of the situation, um, being that they had really a limited practical understanding of it, it just shows like the limitations of if you don't have these things in the light, yeah, the your practical ability to engage with them is going to be severely limited. Uh-huh. Yeah, something that can be so central, so fundamental to existence that it can exist so shrouded that yeah you can be you know 10 years old or something mm -hmm. and not even know what it is yeah there's so many places we could go from here in the conversation i'm curious to hear what your relationship with honesty and transparency is you also mentioned uh previously feeling like it was really difficult to talk to people who had who are open with their psychedelic experiences so I think a reasonable avenue there could be for me to ask you about your experiences. Hmm. And then also I just want to put out there that I'm really interested to hear more about your relationship with Buddhism hmm. and with mindfulness concepts. That's something that I've really enjoyed talking with you in the past. Hmm. Um, so that's a huge word salad and I'd serve it up to you. Is, is there <laughs> any there that's um, most exciting or most livening for you? Oh yeah. Yeah. That lit up a few good things. Um, yeah, as far as the the honesty thing, I think it's mostly um I think it's kind of a condition personally, you know, that I to a fault sometimes that I'm I'm pretty much open. I think there was a time in my life where I where I liked to deceive, I liked to lie. I, you know, I would would get myself out of trouble with it. It was kind of this game that I would play, but became overwhelming you know trying to keep all the stories straight so i just gave up on it entirely and, <laughs> and have completely eliminated i can't say that i i um i i often get myself caught in situations where i'm telling you know telling someone something that uh how should i say this i told my grandma the other day that my dad got a motorcycle a year ago and my grandma's like, oh, really? And I, I didn't realize that I wasn't supposed to tell her that. And maybe a year ago, my dad said, hey, don't tell your grandma that I got this motorcycle. But, you know, that part of me isn't really intact. <laughs> I'm just not great at holding on to that. And, you know, when it comes to confidentiality, it's a totally different game. But when it's something like that, when it's just sort of a, a fact of life, yeah, I'm pretty, uh, yeah, I, I share pretty openly. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just want to say I really admire that and I think that's a great default to go to um, you haven't asked for my opinion on events like that and I, I don't want to offer advice or anything but I also want to say quite clearly that I feel it's really important that we recognize when people ask us to obfuscate the truth in casual or like personal relationships 
that that is a that is a request to lie mm-hmm. even if it's a lie by omission which mm-hmm. i have strong feelings about as still being duplicitous it's mm-hmm. intentionally misleading someone by re- like reserving the truth mm-hmm. and yeah i i would really hope to and in my personal and professional relationships really do want to strive for consistency where we can be transparent and like empower everyone with all the knowledge that's available rather than hamstringing them with these little like white lies or shading of the truth because yeah so many instances where that comes back to bite you yeah yeah definitely um there's another part of your question there the oh, yeah. second one was about your personal experiences. Mm-hmm. What do you want to know about them? I mean, what's your, in this time and space, in this, uh, on this day, mm-hmm. what is your relationship with um, personal use of various psychedelics? Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots of different relationships for sure. Um, I, uh, I find the most um, consistent is that I, I like to, you know, maybe quarterly, um, have like an intentional experience with with a with a powerful psychedelic that it's um just helps me helps me kind of process everything that's happened since the last time and you know while i while i do well with my um my normal functioning state of consciousness that going into that you know whether it's you know dismantling the default mode network or or you know letting you know or like fueling my you know all the serotonin receptors surrounding my gut or however it is that it's happening i find that i i connect with a part of myself that that knows me really well and that knows what i like and that knows what's good for me and that always you know reminds me how to live in alignment with um yeah with with what feels with what has always felt true to me and it really helps me remember what that is and what that feels like and yeah i find that if i if i do that every few months then i don't slip into into fooling myself that i can that i can you know get away with something that i that i've known for a long time isn't the right way to do it you know i'll start you know, eating, you know, I'll be like, oh, maybe I'll just like get that bacon and egger because it's two in the morning and I'm driving by McDonald's. Maybe I'll just get that and then do that a couple times. And then I have, you know, a big mushroom experience that's like, you can't have that garbage in your body, you know, and it's, yeah, it's, um, it's subjective, but it feels very, very true to me in those moments. And yeah, mm-hmm. I feel that, yeah, using, using psychedelics, somewhat regularly really really helps that at the same time i like to um i like to take smaller doses with my friends and and connect and explore and you know if we both feel like we're we're like we're safe with each other or or yeah that we that we that we can explore you know without without judgment that if maybe it is more powerful than we were expecting that we're in a safe place with a safe person so that whatever may manifest is 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 welcome you know that that is a that's a really great great way of exploring the psychedelic space for me as well um it's a lot more um 
a lot more generative you know a lot kind of gets created out of it whereas some of those deeper experiences while they can definitely be generative they almost feel to me at this point in my life like they're more um almost corrective Mm. Mm -hmm. it's something that i still uh, i feel like i'm not i have an urgent sense that the general populace yets to really appreciate the dual benefits of psychedelic participation Mm. on that corrective and generative Mm. axes Mm -hmm. because even the term medicine like so often you take medicine in the western model to heal or to Mm -hmm. be fixed or whatever Mm -hmm. as opposed to uh to grow or develop or strengthen Mm -hmm. and it sounds like from what you just shared and based on my own experiences and having spoken to people in this in this community that those two things are interchangeable and that there's so much potential for like what I heard from you was awakening to what is already true Mm -hmm. to resensitizing to what is important and what brings joy and meaning and connection Mm -hmm. and hopefully to derive next actions or patterns of behaviors or lifestyle changes that can continue to steer us towards those qualities that are so simple like conceptually Mm -hmm. like being more connected being more true not ingesting things that maybe your body doesn't appreciate but in practice like that seems to be the main obstacle that people are facing of doing that on a consistent basis Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i uh one of my friends helped me kind of see it more as like as food you know opposed to medicine you know that you know our body needs all kinds of things mm. and doesn't mean that we need them all day every day but that there are you know there are nutrients there are molecules that that benefit us and you know benefit us in different ways at different times and on different levels you know maybe maybe you, you eat a watermelon because you're hungry or maybe you eat a watermelon because you really enjoy the taste and maybe both are happening concurrently and that yeah that's okay that's great yeah yeah now's probably a good time to just say that neither adrian or i are doctors we don't play them on tv uh so be sure to check with your healthcare providers or whoever um, you go to for this kind of advice to see whether or not these substances are safe for you we're not recommending that you launch full into psychedelics without personal research and self-advocacy as well as ensuring that your safety is going to be um, as much as possible guaranteed throughout this process because they are very potent uh, agents of change. They can have physiological side effects um, and generally they're, they're pretty safe, but we're not giving a blanket full recommendation here to just go willy-nilly down the psychedelic consumption path. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even watermelon is probably not right for everyone. Well said. But now would be a good time to to examine the Buddhist elements. Yeah, yeah. I um, I've always felt like like Buddhist thought is um, they kind of got it down. You know, I've really um, from what I've been exposed to, you know, I've always felt like there's a lot of a lot of peace, a lot of simplicity, a lot of um, yeah, getting beneath all the like excess and the 
yeah, the misguided nature of the, I don't know, say the American dream. Um, but I, I'm always, yeah, you know, in some ways when I think about Buddhist ideas, I, I'm not well educated. So, you know, it's more like that, that term represents, you know, a a body of ideas that have a, a particular meaning to me, but it may not be you know, wholly representative of, of Buddhism mm-hmm. or the many, many schools of Buddhism that exist. But, you know, if I could sort of strip it down to some basic tenets, I've actually been interacting with some, having good conversations with people about the, the concept of desire and that in Buddhism, I've heard, you know, phrases along the lines of like, desire is equal to suffering and that i see a lot of people who move towards buddhism in a way of uh like simplifying but that it also sometimes gets taken on as a way of um like kind of dampening or like disconnecting oneself from from emotional experience that some people you know latch on to latch on to some of these ideas and you know for all i know they they might be way off the mark of what of what the the buddha may have proclaimed in the beginning but yeah there are there are there are dangers there that i've been recognizing that sometimes it means moving away from emotional experience and I've been kind of understanding this desire equals suffering in a new way and that maybe neither of those are to be avoided maybe like suffering is a part of life and desire is a part of life and that acceptance of both of those is kind of maybe what they were going for initially and maybe we've misinterpreted it as like avoid desire avoid suffering it's all good i'm kind of coming around to the idea that like Mm. you know accept desire accept suffering understand that they're related and yeah just keep moving forward Mm. those are those are sort of like current thoughts that have been alive for me lately so i felt like i'd share them Mm -hmm. Mm. that was really beautiful Mm. Are you open to um, hearing my perspective on that topic? Oh, totally, yeah. So in my sense, the one of the things that first drew, drew me to Buddhism as a philosophy or as a school of thought was that it's very minimal in its, um, at least the kind of Buddhism that I subscribe to, which generally, if for those who want to check it out more, is called Theravada Buddhism. Um there's mm. also green, uh, I think it's green Thai forest Buddhism is like part of the lineage. Okay. Um, but in this particular sect, it's essentially the the very basic premises that starts with desire is the source of all suffering. Mm. And after that, there's a body of teachings, which are generally considered like wisdom teachings. They're, in my understanding, a distilled, a distilled set of 
inferences or claims about what it is to be a being in the world and some of the things that contribute to suffering and also to like skillful behavior, mm-hmm. behaviors that we might really enjoy or get value from. So there's certain things about lying or about engaging with substances that change your consciousness or about um, violence. But my understanding is that the majority of those are more like recommendations or distilled knowledge from generations of people who've practiced this and found like, hey, these are things you might want to pay attention to. Right. So increasingly, I view those as like super valuable nuggets that have been crowdsourced and refined over time. Mm-hmm. And still the, the the real only like metaphysical claim, the only claim about reality, about life is this notion that desire is the source of all suffering. Mm. And so what's really beautiful is in what I heard from you, there is a very, what feels to me familiar process of hearing that and and correct me if this is wrong, but it seems like initially inferring or taking from that, oh, well, I should not have desires then. Mm-hmm. And I want to say that I've spoken to so many folks who go through that process of thinking that or re- reacting in that way. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, if we draw our attention back to the claim, desire is the source of all suffering, there's actually no nothing in there that says you shouldn't suffer. Mm-hmm. There is no... There's no value judgment on whether or not suffering is good or bad. Mm-hmm. We might like immediately feel, well, suffering is bad. Mm-hmm. But if you continue on the path of Buddhism and participate in these communities and read their texts and maybe learn their language that points to those amorphous concepts and can really make it these pieces that we can digest, one of the beautiful ideas or suggestions from the community is that there is no such thing as good or bad. There are not these things that we ought to fear or we ought to flee from or that we ought to try and not do. There are also not things that are objectively good. Mm -hmm. And so immediately people are like, how can that be? Mm -hmm. Because clearly violence or like, like aggression, there are things that we might feel strong negative associations with Mm -hmm. versus holding a loved one, we might really want to say this implicitly or objectively in the thing is a good thing. Mm-hmm. And what Buddhism and my understanding of it, at least is the inv- invitation to investigate what it is to experience those sensations. Mm-hmm. And throughout this tradition, people have noticed through using bare attention, the radar of detecting sensations combined with mindfulness the spotlight where you dive into those sensations, Mm -hmm. they've noticed that instead of objective measures of good or bad, there is merely indications of preference. So we might find that, oh, I really don't like the feeling in my body when I lie, the tightness Mm -hmm. that happens in my chest, the constriction when I'm caught, when somebody's confused because they were trusting me and yet I led them astray. Mm Mm-hmm. And we might feel like a physical like tug that feels really unpleasant and is motivating to not do those behaviors. Mm-hmm. And it's important I, I, for, in my conception of this to emphasize that that does not mean that is bad. It does not mm-hmm. mean that it's bad to lie. It might just mean, and this is the like new language that I think is pivotal, that 
we don't like to lie. Our preferences are such that we don't enjoy it. Mm -hmm. It's relational. It's about this, how it feels to do that thing, as opposed to referring to some external law of the world that says objectively, this is what's good or bad or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate that because once for myself, I was able to digest that um, possibility that there is no good or bad mm -hmm. and that simply everything is evident of my relationship to it. I was, I was able to notice, oh, my relationships to things are not always accurate mm -hmm. and they change. They're transitory. Sure. And so things like suffering, like it's so easy to be in a situation, say like you just got rear-ended and you get out of your car. The, for myself, I'll notice like, oh, this is the worst. This is, how could this happen? This mm -hmm. is, I hate this. And what I'll do is practice bare attention, notice that's occurring, direct my attention to be like, wow, that's a really intense sensation. It's really, oh, it feels jagged. It feels like antacid in my stomach or something. Mm -hmm. I really don't enjoy this. And rather than being like, okay, well, then immediately I have to do all these steps because of that to simply sit with that and be like, what is it like? it really has this crazy downstream effect for me of often changing the sensation will relax once it's attended to hmm. and integrated. I almost have the sense that it no longer is trying to bang on the door and get my attention mm -hmm. and I'm freed from that underlying continual sense of this needs to change. This needs to change, which is the desire, which is continuing the suffering. Mm hmm. And it's as simple as like the antacid in this case, the Pepto-Bismol is like literally just like listening and allowing myself to be with that sensation, whatever it is, without falling into the temptation of um, changing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What helps you be with that? Uh, lots of time spent meditating. Mm -hmm. um, my, maybe as explicitly as sitting on a mat, cross-legged with good posture, focusing on breathing into my core. Um, or also, I, at a certain point, I started to see that in instances where there was a strong salient emotion, and by the way, in Buddhism, what I was taught, um, there's a really wonderful book about this called uh, Thoughts Without a Thinker mm -hmm. by uh, the psychiatrist, Harvard-educated psychiatrist Mark Epstein, this was one of the first books I was intended to give an introduction to Buddhism for a Western audience. That book is what got me into Buddhism and introduced it. I will say it's based on Mark's experience, very tied in with Freudian psychology. I tended to skip over most of his uh, suggestions or claims about how psychology works because I don't agree with a lot of the ideas, but the introduction to what Buddhism is, I found super, super valuable. Cool. And so one of the things I took from that is when you have a very strong salient emotion and notice here, those are neutral terms, strong, salient, just meaning noticeable emotion. It's mm -hmm. not saying a good emotion or a bad emotion, but any kind of emotion can be on that category. Mm -hmm. It's an opportunity to like, really like, that's probably the easiest time to be like, Oh, I'm feeling a thing. <laughs> Am I able to direct my attention to it? And to exist or allow it to exist without shifting it. Hmm. And that doesn't mean just simply um, 
not doing anything. I think that notion of inaction is another co concept or topic that often comes up with people who are um, beginning to understand Buddhism. This idea that oh, a Buddhist would just sit in a storm and just let it like pick them up and throw them away. Hmm. Um, I mean, there could be value in doing that. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, Buddhism is not prescriptive in saying that is the right thing to do. Sure. There's very few claims about what is good or bad. Mm -hmm. I think what the kind of very subtle distinction that a Buddhist might want to make is that the ability to sit in that storm as it passes is no easy thing. And that by finding safe ways where you're not going to get swept up in a storm, maybe mm -hmm. to practice that it enables one to have these muscles to deploy during situations, which um, maybe it's very compelling to get swept away. Mm. And again, you'll notice here, I'm not saying just during crises, mm -hmm. like it might be like during a moment of ecstasy, mm -hmm. it's so easy to like surrender yourself and give up to that sensation and just be like, Oh, it's pure pleasure. I don't need to pay attention. Mm. Let me just get lost in the sensation. Mm. And I, in my experience, if we really pay attention during those situations, we'll find that we're giving something up. We're, like for me, it feels like I'm turning off my conscious participation mm. and actually like dulling myself to the ecstasy. Mm. And that, and again, in rage or in crisis, it can be really compelling or, intuitive to fight or flee from the sensation and in doing so to really lose track of what the essential components of what's going on are and to hamstring my ability then to respond to them in a way that's useful hmm. i'm curious about this notion of uh like giving something up like sort of surrendering to the the experience and and letting go of that conscious apprehension of it because sometimes for me that seems like um like a really beneficial approach sorry it's, to give up the sense of appre um apprehension like if can you give an example mm, oh sorry not um oh yeah okay let me clarify that that to um to release into the the sensation the emotion and to um to allow the the conscious mind the opportunity just to to back right off and just to to feel and to not you know mm -hmm. I yeah think, i mean the noticing i'm wondering like what am i noticing in those moments yeah. for sure i think there might be a part of this that um I haven't made clear. Mm. So the Buddha, one thing he spoke to was the traditional responses we have to strong excitements, to strong feelings. Mm -hmm. And he put it on like a polar axis. So on one side you have to resist mm -hmm. and one side you have to surrender. Mm -hmm. So resisting is typically to f deny, to flee, to fight. Mm-hmm. For me, it's the idea of like a fox backed into a corner, like all the things it's going to try and do. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, you have surrender, which is to lay down and then be swept away from or to give up or to go to sleep. Mm -hmm. Importantly, 
that end of the spectrum is not the solution and whereas the other is not the problem hmm. the the axis is not like you should do one but not the other mm-hmm. instead what he's suggesting is these are the most common ways of responding to all stimuli mm-hmm. and instead there is a middle point which is simply noticing and attending to participating in the sensations mm-hmm. without the desire to fall to either side of the spectrum mm-hmm. and this by the way is actually one of the other names for buddhist philosophy which is called the third way or the third path mm-hmm. which in his teachings one of the claims he makes is that it's not intuitive and that for many of us the idea that there even is a third path is hard to glimpse mm-hmm. and that one of the values that buddhism can offer is elucidating that like hidden path and really offering practices or modes of being that help cultivate um the first foothold so you can continue along it mm-hmm. cool cool yeah it's uh it gives me some things to think about <laughs> so f- from that it's this question of what is it to participate in the sensations without surrender or without resistance or fighting or whatever Mm-hmm. And honestly, for myself, that seems like that is the question of so many, so many important elements of life. Mm-hmm. And I, I actively on a daily basis, whether I'm tasting something delicious, like this is one of the best times to do it. Mm-hmm. Like if you're having a piece of cake, my experience of that is right away, like the first bite is like so much signal. And then often I catch myself like literally dampening my response mm-hmm. and being like, Oh, that was pleasurable. I just know this is pleasurable now. I can just eat it. And it could more or less be cardboard. Mm -hmm. And there's something really beautiful in being able to be like, okay, what if I paid attention to each bite? Mm -hmm. What if I I paid attention to each breath? Mm -hmm. Knowing that I have a finite number of breaths and that the sensation is something that at one point I'm probably going to appreciate, like wishing I had it or whatever. What if I just really appreciate this one breath? Mm -hmm. I can see the, the balance of resistance and surrender in that and yeah. that um and that one will be you know both like surrendering to the the sensation but yet like resisting you know being i think earlier you referred to like being a swept away from or or something along those lines that it's more being like swept towards you know mm-hmm. one of the analogies that i found useful is uh really questioning whether there is an eye or a thing or a person in the first place to be swept away mm-hmm. and the so one story the buddha tells is about you could be the leaf that lands in the water and tries to like get out and fights or you could be the leaf that lands on the water and just like resigns itself to going with the tides or the waves, whatever. Mm-hmm. Or you could be the person who sits in the middle of say a river and the water just passes through them mm-hmm. and they aren't at some point they realize there isn't like even a distinction between them and the river. There is simply, simply something knowing what it is like to be in that space and that time and participating in the sensations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think they're onto something. <laughs> um, I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, we're almost at the end of what we had scheduled. Mm. Um, 
I have a couple questions for you that are more on the rapid side, rapid fire side. Um, I did also want to talk to you about the idea of referring to childhood trauma as mm. it relates to people's healing. Mm. Um, that would probably take us more in the five to 10 minute range though. Mm-hmm. Is that something we should bookmark for another conversation or? Um, yeah, you know, we can talk about that a little bit. Yeah. What's the, yeah. You got a question? Yeah, totally. So one of the first times we met, I think that was something we spoke we into the wee hours of the night. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea or the contention that I think a lot of Western counselors have, which is so much of our, um, our hangups or our struggles in today's world, in our adult lives or whatever, are traceable to acute instances or diffused instances of trauma as ch- children. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting as you... as we were talking about this, I was just going through a course at university for the history of different therapeutic practices. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting to me to hear that Freud literally was one of the first people to even suggest that and to draw Mm -hmm. a connection towards Mm -hmm. the childhood. And he went so far to say explicitly, everything is from that. Right. And my immediate response to that upon hearing that the first time is like, so what if somebody loses their arm in a automobile accident or whatever and then they have struggles about not having an arm, mm-hmm. but that happened as an adult. How are you going to trace that back to their childhood? Mm-hmm. Um, so I have the sense that there's limitations to that view. And yet it's something that persists, I think, when I speak to a lot of counselors. So I'm curious, what is your current relationship with the notion of childhood experiences and and also where, do you, where does trauma come from? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to go to the example that you used of um, having lost an arm, I think that so often, you know, yeah, circumstances need to be addressed first and foremost. You know, sometimes it, it helps for uh, a person to recognize that there is nothing, in fact, wrong with them but that the the circumstances in which they are existing are what's making it difficult um but yeah to refer to that losing an arm scenario i think that if a person has a history of suffering loss that that um that loss of the arm can be so much more Mm. charged than um than it would be maybe for someone who hasn't had to lose something or maybe if someone has never lost something it may be more difficult for them because they haven't learned about about processing loss and about you know the maybe some of the benefits that that come from suffering but i think and i see in a lot of people that navigating stressors in the present is um is made more complicated by the ways that they've experienced stressors in the past Mm. and that that scales based on how how severe the trauma that people have have been through Mm. has been um so i think that um acknowledgement awareness you know like being able to sort of you know reveal the patterns that that trauma can sort of 
you know, gouge into our lives, that that is a really important part of, of my practice with clients. That, yeah, acknowledgement of the trauma, you know, sort of teasing apart where the the narratives that people carry, how they were, how they've been pieced together. And that that's, um, yeah, very, very important. I definitely take a, a trauma-informed approach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what I'm hearing from that is some version of honoring the reality that we are beings that have a history of experiences that interact in often ways that are complex and can directly impact our moment to moment experience. Totally. Yeah. There's so much, there's so much information there. Um, that yeah, our, our biography and you know, the, the things that happened in our, you know, in our family, our ancestral lineage, all of that, you know, it all contributes to where we are right now. Mm hmm. Something that I would like to continue to investigate and feel into is the, I think the reality of that mm-hmm. alongside what I view as a potential truth, which is that in each moment, the only thing that exists is the current moment. And that might sound like some woo woo, uh, far out platitude, some some nice thing to say that is like mystic or whatever, but I've really come to appreciate the practical implications of that as it shapes my own experience of struggle or trauma. Mm-hmm. Because I, and I learned this from a book called already free mm-hmm. by Bruce Tift, which is really the synthesis or the combining of these, what he calls the Freudian or developmental view as in developing as a kid with the fruitional or becoming view of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I never had really focused on or like allowed to myself to reflect on was that in each moment, even if I like say I caught myself being triggered and I was like, as a, as a kid, this was a really important thing to me Mm -hmm. that didn't get nurtured or cared for. And I still hold that wound. Mm -hmm. I find myself or my clients or whatever falling or sometimes participating in a narrative, which is I am this way because of this. And therefore I have this response. Mm. And for myself, when I participate or when I really witness the process, I notice that there's some level of solidity that when I actually probe it isn't there, but that I'm, ascribing or I'm creating in the situation because I'm choosing to reinforce this narrative to the event, which often is like a shortcut to actually just experiencing what the sensation is. Mm-hmm. Earlier we talked about the eating cake and just muting the sensations. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really reflexive thing to do mm-hmm. because it takes more energy to be conscious and to participate in the sensations and the um, physical movements and all that jazz. Mm-hmm. And so often I'll notice myself like say in a personal conflict with somebody being like, well, I'll notice a strong sensation and without really paying attention, I'll be like, 
oh, this is anger or distrust or whatever. Therefore, this person's a bad person because mm. they did this thing and that thing's really important to me and they didn't do it. Sure. And if I really investigate it instead of this set set of understandings of what is good or what is bad or what is happening, I'll discover, oh, I'm actually feeling some really challenging or maybe complex emotions mm -hmm. and i'm really trying to bypass that and mm -hmm. like skip over it because i don't want to do the work yeah so i'm i try to really invite people to recognize that along with the context which can be so informative and i think is necessary mm -hmm. they're also in each moment is i believe an opportunity to tune in and to see what is my ongoing moment to moment experience like and yeah, it may be derived from past experiences, but there might also be value in simply being honest and open and fully committed to experiencing it right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that's an awesome place to end up, like a great thing to strive for. And that for those people who, you know, in, in trying to, you know, arrive at the present moment that it's difficult because the you know the moments from the past have been so activated that they're they're right there with them you know interrupting every every opportunity for presence that yeah being able to work towards that but to to recognize that um that for them right now the present moment isn't all that there is. So yeah, finding ways to like, to organize that, to, to give that, you know, the, the feelings and the thoughts and everything associated with the trauma to give it space to find out where it can, um, where it can exist in, uh, in acceptance and not like, yeah, not be just always like engaged with, was mm -hmm. pushing it away you know the whole don't think about the white bear thing you know you, all you do is end up thinking about the white bear so saying oh no like all we've got is the present moment here you know it can just yeah i think that there there's trauma that needs to be processed and that it's a there's a finite amount and that the present moment exists underneath it all hmm to be completely honest, that's something I still struggle to fully appreciate or I think understand as I'm not sure where the trauma exists, if not in the present moment. And I, I'm not, I'm not trying to make any claims that it doesn't. I really honor the, the immense value of recognizing the pernicious and extensive influence of what we commonly refer to as traumatic events. Mm. I'm just, in my own personal experience, feeling my emotions as well as witnessing others, what I see is a continually like moment to moment rediscovery of what is true. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes that can be a uh, fallen on either ends of the spectrum of fleeing from or denying or surrendering to and being swept away from. Mm -hmm. um, but it is in those moment to moment experiences that I think the, the, trauma is continued mm -hmm. and renewed mm -hmm. and i totally get that it can be really threatening and in some cases unadvisable to 
allow oneself to embrace or be with those sensations. It may be that you physically or literally or also spiritually or mentally are not in a safe space to do so. Mm -hmm. And by all means, like do what you need to get safe. Um, I'm also, yeah, I just, I'm curious about the possibility that at any moment we have the opportunity, the chance, the possibility, the potential to be present with what is without falling into a category where it needs to be made other or to be this external agent that's acting upon us. Right. Right. Yeah. That in every moment, yeah, that trauma is there present in that moment. And so, so too is everything else yeah, that you've exactly. ever experienced. So totally. they're all there, but for some reason the trauma is, um, is blotting everything out. It's jostled yeah. for so much more territory mm-hmm. that, yeah, that in that moment, to yeah to find that safety to engage you know to be willing to engage with the trauma to be able to engage with the trauma and accept that it is there in that moment but somehow you know through some process you know just take the charge down take the sense of urgency down take the you know the 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 fear you know all the all the debilitating aspects of of being with that trauma, having it be so present in that present moment that, um, yeah, that there is, that that is, I think where so much of the work Mm -hmm. exists as to how, how to, um, how not to like remove the trauma, but how to, you know, put it somewhere that it can, that's sustainable, that it can stay, that, that is integrated into our conception of, of self. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, the idea that comes up so often in the psychedelic community of the only way past is through, mm-hmm. that comes out for me as well as, and just want to really share for anyone who's listening to this, who's maybe doubtful that it is possible. I have huge compassion for that. And I too have have those doubts sometimes. And I just want to offer as a, one, an, a survey of one that in my experience, quite unintuitively, the path to allowing these sensations to relax is by welcoming them with open arms. Mm -hmm. And it can be so terrifying to turn around and face this monster that's breathing down your neck when you've been running away from it and Mm -hmm. to literally try and give it a hug. Mm -hmm. It's yeah, a terrifying thing. And yeah, I just wanted to share that sometimes it can help. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, you know, what, what so much of the the psychedelic work facilitates is that you know that one's own drive to to heal and to to achieve that you know to arrive at that place where the trauma isn't you know so so forceful that it's dominating your experience yeah that that is i think that is what our you know what we are are driven to do and what we are struggling to do and that these you know these psychedelic substances have this uncanny ability to to bring us into contact with with the emotions with the experiences that are you know that are always living within us that are just simmering below the surface and that we in our normal waking consciousness have 
you know that in our in our determination to survive and our, our need to just keep going and attend to the you know the minutiae of every single day that we don't have the chance for so to to set aside you know literal time you know to create literal space for this you know to intentionally you know organize your life in such a way that there is time and space for that to plan for that to to know really that that is so much of the value in the experience and then to find people to to hold that space to to assure that safety to people who are um who are willing and 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 yeah who are, who are able to learn from you what is important to you for that space to be held and that they can meet that so that the trust is truly there so that you can yeah so that you can feel what you have been trying not to feel mm. that that's uh yeah that seems to be the the magic and the psychedelic experience yeah yeah well said and i have a prayer and i'm sure you share it that more people gain access to that in a way that is safe and affordable and offers them the benefits of these incredible incredible technologies and traditions yeah yeah i think a lot of us working towards it it feels like uh it feels like a good wave is building right on well just before we wrap up a couple quick questions uh -huh. do you have any favorite books that you want to recommend to the audience that pertain to any of the subjects that we've talked about hmm they can be books or um biographies or podcasts or documentaries yeah what has been most impactful to me that's a hard question that's a really hard question <laughs> yeah um seems so uh it seems so personal it's difficult to make a a broad recommendation i find i when individual people ask me about books i'm a lot quicker to to recommend a certain one but yeah it, can, it comes out of the relationship you know i could selfishly say then do you have any recommendations for me hmm what do i think would be a good thing for you to read uh, or potentially any other members of vaps I know as your role, as somebody who, who's been a co-founder and a organizer there, has there been something that people come to you asking for advice that you're able to point them towards? Hmm. You know, the, the, throughout this conversation, you know, the book that comes up that, uh, that has spoken to me is, is this book uh, Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. That it, uh, have you read it? I haven't, but I'm familiar with okay. what it is. So it's... Um, you know, it's kind of a, a bit of a mythic tale of the life of the Buddha. And that it, yeah, really just sort of describes his life through all the temptations and the ways in which he finds peace. And there's a, a beautiful simplicity to it. It seems like it transcends um, time. You know, it's the, the principles that it rests on. Yeah, that they... They, I think they apply to any era, any person, any kind of circumstance. Yeah, that's a... I always pick up copies of that book and, and give them away to people. Mm. And uh, yeah, that one. 
Beautiful. Very valuable book. Right on. Yeah. I'll ch- have to check it out. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a copy. I'll give it to you. Sweet. Yeah. Sounds good. Um, do you have any message that you'd like to share with anyone who's interested in either studying to be a counselor or a clinician or a psychiatrist or somebody who's just watching the psychedelic field with curiosity because it represents a tectonic shift in what um, like mind medicine there is? Hmm. If you had the platform to speak to them directly, what might you say? Hmm. Find a way to, to eat mushrooms that feels safe to you. You know, create create the context where you can have an ex- have an embodied experience of what we're talking about. Because there are so many people in the field that that perceive the potential. You know, that can see the the economic opportunities that are taken by the um, the the healing yeah, capacity, and that want to be involved, but are remain um fearful of the the challenges of the difficulties and and that it is you know it's very meta it's this it's this embodied approach you know where you you need to 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 do it you need to work through whatever it takes you know all these different obstacles all these limitations all these hesitancies that you need to you know all the all the hurdles that it takes to actually choose to do it and to choose that it, to do it in a way that feels meaningful and that that you know why you're there and why you're doing it that that is uh yeah that's that's step 1 and step 2 and step 3 and 4 I think yeah that's uh and that yeah find do it doing it safely um like I, maybe a lot of this I sort of um, am taking for granted at this point, but that you know having having a safe place where nothing sudden is going to interrupt you, having someone that you trust implicitly, someone that you know has you know your best interest in mind and that understands why you are there and that you're both there for the same for the same reason. Yeah, that those are critical things because you're right; they are they are very safe. But um, I, I think that the greatest risks come from, you know, trust wounds mm. that um, in in such a in a vulnerable state, unless we know that we are that we are safe with the people that we're there with. Um, as soon as as soon as that sense of trust or safety, you know, as soon as there's a crack in it, then um, it can be it can be really difficult. It can be really a lot of a lot of challenges, a lot of yeah that's that's when a lot of a lot of a lot of stuff comes up that you know that will will undoubtedly lead you towards more more processing and and probably further revelations but yeah having having that trust as a as a foundation i think is the the bar none the most important thing mm-hmm. if i'd be so bold i just want to append to that I heard a safe environment that's predictable and stable, someone who you trust implicitly, someone who's super has your best interests in heart and is going to be there to support you. Perhaps they're sober and they're able to respond if the environment gets hostile. In some cases they might not be, but they might be somebody who's familiar with the medicine and can move through it in ways of integrity and safety. Mm. And also the traditional advice of, um, so that's, that would refer to set as in the setting that you're in. 
and then also including mindset and you spoke to this about the intentionality mm-hmm. coming into it like why are you doing it what are your goals what is your why why are you here <laughs> yeah why you're doing it and um how open can you be mm. to whatever whatever may appear you know that yeah focusing on that intention can really help bring you into the moment and know what why you're there but depending on how things go where it takes you i think the the willingness to to surrender and to trust that that the experience you know has an inherent wisdom mm-hmm. that uh yeah that, that's that's important mm, that's beautiful so in the show notes for this episode we'll have references to all the things we talk about also mm-hmm. throw up links to vaps the mm-hmm. victoria association of psychedelic studies and also therasil mm-hmm. is there anything Great. else that you'd want to direct the audience to any way that they could perhaps follow the work that you're doing mm. No, I'm just one one branch in a really big tree. Um, Vaps is great. I think um, now that now that regulations have have softened a little bit, we'll be able to start holding events. Um, yeah, by the end of the summer, we'll definitely have more scheduled events, so anyone who's in the area will be able to access. But yeah, there are local local psychedelic societies springing up in every every city, and that those are excellent ways to just start. Yeah, start sharing. Start learning start hearing what other people are going through and really um yeah really build the community and the relationships that can that can support these these deep vulnerabilities in like a lasting way Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well thank you so much adrian for this conversation thanks blake and i heard you describe yourself as one branch on a tree i also heard earlier you talked about the beginning of VAPS and how it served as a lightning rod for community and conversations. Mm. And I just want to offer that I really see you both as that blade of grass in a field as well as uh, the trunk of a mighty oak. And I sincerely appreciate the work you've done, again, since before it was cool (laughs) to help cultivate these communities and shepherd people through in a way that I know your biggest focus is on kindness and integrity and making sure people are safe. And that's immensely valuable. I can't can't begin to quantify that so thanks for showing up in the ways that you have uh thank you blake it feels um it feels really good to be to be seen in that way i think often i just refer to myself as a spore and i uh, i see you sporing too yeah really doing the work to get this out there to people and i think that that is yeah invaluable and yeah gratitude i come mm-hmm. right back to you cheers man thank you <laughs> <laughs>